Amen. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are here with us today. We thank you that we have your word. Jesus, you prayed in the garden, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Lord, and that's our prayer this morning, that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would speak through your word to our hearts and minds to either draw us to faith in Christ or to make us more like Christ. We look to you now, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, it's so good to be with you again this morning, and it uh, sounded like you had a ton of fun last night. I want to tell you a little story. When I was uh, studying at Talbot, one of the jobs I took to help pay the bills was working as a substitute teacher. So I signed up with several uh, school districts in uh, kind of the L.A. County area, one of the school districts I worked in was uh, a town called Norwalk, Norwalk High School. One day I was called to go work in. I didn't know a whole lot about Norwalk. I just knew it was a city near Biola where I was studying. And so I show up to this neighborhood and instantly I knew, uh, you know, it was going to be a little bit of a challenge because in the neighborhood surrounding the high school, all the windows were covered by bars, right? So it <laughs> gave me the impression it wasn't a super safe neighborhood particularly. So I show up to the office, I check in. And uh, they say, okay, you're going to, Mr. Hawley, you're going to be working with special education today. And when I said special education, I thought, great, because when I had been in high school, I had actually taken as an elective one-year coaching PE to kids in special education, so kids with Down syndrome and this type of thing. And so I made a comment to that end to the lady checking me in, and she said, oh, no, it's not that kind of special education. These are the worst kids in the school. And I thought, oh, the worst kids in this school. Okay, well, that's going to be interesting today. So I go into the classroom, the bell rings, the students start to walk in, and as soon as they see me sitting at the desk and they realize it's a substitute teacher, it's like, you know, blood in the water, the sharks, right? And they're like, oh, it's a substitute, and they're like, raise the roof, and all these crazy things. And, uh, you know, in this particular school, there had been a substitute teacher whose room had just been completely destroyed, and I mean literally destroyed, like they had ripped everything off the walls, they had overturned the desks. I was there that day, I saw it, and... Uh, I was thinking like, oh man, I hope this doesn't happen to me today. So the class starts, five minutes into the class, they're doing the work, everything's fine. But then one of the students notices that I'm wearing a wedding ring. And so uh, uh, they say to me, uh, hey, are you married? And I said, yeah. And I, I'm thinking, okay, this is good, a little connection with the students, maybe they're going to ask how we met. And the next question that came out was, are you cheating on your wife? And I was like, okay, that, I don't usually, that's not the kind of conversation I usually have about marriage when somebody asks about marriage. And I said, no, I'm, I'm not cheating on her. And then to that, they started to chime in, several of them. Oh, yeah, you are. You know you're cheating on her. And I'm like, I'm not. What is going on here? Oh, no, the class is about to get destroyed. This is what I'm thinking, right? And then they said, well, you know she's cheating on you. And I'm like, no. And then finally, I'm like, okay, I, I got to say something here. Um, so I prayed. And I asked them, hey, can I, I'm not cheating on my wife. She's not cheating on me. Can I tell you why? And they're like, yeah, tell us. So right as I'm about to talk, the door swings open and a teacher's a little Hispanic lady about this tall, late 50s. She walks in. She sees a little chaos going on in the classroom. And she says, what is going on in here? And I said, well, um, I was about to tell the students why I don't cheat on my wife because they were asking about that. And she said, what does that have to do with anything in the lesson? And I said, it doesn't. It just sort of came up. Can I talk about it? She said, go ahead. 
And I said, I need to talk about my faith as I answer this question. Can I do that? And she's like, go ahead. So I said, okay. <laughs> so I just looked at him. I said, guys, my wife and I, we believe in Jesus and we follow Jesus. And in his word, he tells the husband to, to love his wife like Christ loved the church. So my goal in marriage is to, to love my wife, to even be willing to, to give my life for her, certainly not to cheat on her. And uh, that's all I said. I didn't say a whole lot. I was pretty nervous, to be honest with you. But the room that had been so full of chaos and rambunctiousness and <laughs> right on the precipice of rebellion just a moment before suddenly grew incredibly silent, and nobody said a word. And then one of the students looked at me, and I saw pain in her eyes. And she said, well, if God is so good, why did my brother get killed in a drive-by? And then another one looked at me and, and said, yeah, and if, if God is so loving, then, then why did my cousin OD? And I'm sitting there going like, oh my gosh, what do I say? Well, you know what happened? Then that little teacher's age, she stood up. And she goes, mija, because when, when, you, when you pray, you got to pray and you got to mean it, just like he said. And I'm thinking, I didn't even say that, but that's pretty good. <laughs> well, what happened next was this teacher's aide, apparently she was a believer in Jesus as well. She took these students and she began to minister to them and count literally the whole class time. She was talking to them and praying with them and letting them kind of pour out their hearts. I engaged a little bit more of the students, but then things settled down and they got back to their work. And the reason I share that story with you is because in that moment, the only thing really that saved me from losing complete control in that classroom was Jesus, but it was also the Word of God. Because I was referring to Ephesians 5, God's vision for a marriage, the roles and the vision and the heart for a husband and wife. And as soon as I was able to bring God's Word into that conversation, things began to change in that classroom. And fortunately, by His grace... God had put one of his people there to save me when I was at a moment where I wasn't sure how to respond. And the Holy Spirit was at work through it all. And by the way, those are some of the means of grace that God has given each one of us. It's his word, his spirit, and his people. We are blessed as we engage with those means of grace each and every day. But I want to talk tonight, uh, today, sorry, this morning rather, <laughs> last, last night was tonight, God is truth. Um, is the, the theme that we're talking about, truth be told. But last night we talked about simply God being truth. And some key thoughts from last night are that God always existed, that He's the creator and He's the source of all truth, and that Jesus existed at the beginning with God in full equality with Him. And so today, this morning, we're looking at the truth of Scripture. So you might remember last night we talked about a general revelation. How has God revealed himself generally so that we should know there is a God? It's through creation and through our conscience, but there's some specific revelation. It's God's word, and then it's Jesus, the word become flesh. And today we're going to talk about that specific revelation of God's word. And as you saw in the video, the fact that we even have our Bibles, whether you have a, a physical Bible or you've got it on your phone or however you're looking at the Bible right now, is actually a miracle. It's actually incredible that we have our Bibles because over the centuries, men and women who loved God and who loved His Word have literally died. They have given their lives that we could have a Bible. Uh, John Wycliffe, the first translator uh, of, to the Bible in English, 
he was literally burned at the stake. And this was actually by the church, the, the state church. Didn't want people to have Bibles in their hands. And so when he was, was daring to translate it from Latin into English, they literally burned him at the stake. But you know, his prayer at the stake was, God opened the king of England's eyes and God answered that prayer. And eventually the Bible was, was made legal for people to have. So in, 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 in consider the incredible privilege that we have to, to own a Bible. Consider the, the blood that has been shed. Consider who has gone before us that we could be blessed to own our own copies of God's Word. So we're going to be in John chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 19. And let me just read to you starting in verse 19. It says, This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So, you know, it's good to know who we are and who we're not. And John knows I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So it's an interesting question they asked John, who are you? Now again, John here, he's not the John who wrote the gospel. This is John the baptizer or John the Baptist as we know him. And who is John? Well, he is, uh, we know from the synoptic gospels that he's the cousin of Jesus. We know that he is uh, the one who's prophesied in the Old Testament, who's going to prepare the way of the Lord. He quotes here, Isaiah 40, verse 3, and when John began his wilderness, he's eating locusts and wild honey. He's, he's a wild man, and he's preaching this message of repentance, telling people to get their hearts ready for the coming of the Lord, and then he's baptizing them out here in the wilderness. And these religious leaders that come to John, they're asking him all these questions because at this point in Israel's history, they're expecting something to happen. They're anticipating that God is going to be doing something big. And the reason they are anticipating this is because they knew their Bibles. For them, the Bible at this point was the Old Testament. But see, the Old Testament had expectations about this Messiah who was going to be coming. And the word Messiah, it's a Hebrew word, literally in English means the anointed one. It's where we get in Greek the word Christ. When you hear Messiah, Christ, anointed one, it's all the same thing. But the Old Testament predicted that at this very time in history, the Messiah would come. And so these, these men are sent by the Pharisees to ask John, are you the guy? Because we see a movement starting. We see God doing something, and maybe you are the Christ. Maybe you are the anointed one. So from their Old Testament, these religious leaders knew that humanity was steeped in sin from Adam and Eve, that there was death because of sin. They knew that God had gone to a man named Abraham and had chosen Abraham and said, Abraham, through your descendants, the whole world will be blessed. And then that was the birth of the nation of Israel. And then the nation of Israel was given God's law, uh, the law that contains the Ten Commandments, things like don't kill and don't steal and don't commit adultery, but also many more laws than that. There's 613 commandments actually in the Old Testament. And the law that was given was never meant to make us right with God. In other words, the law is so impossible to follow, let alone all the rules that extra that the Pharisees stacked on top of it, that no one could ever be made righteous by following the law. 
Uh, Romans 7 puts it this way, What shall we say then is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. So the point of the law is to show us that we have sin in our lives, that we do not measure up to God's perfection, but never meant to make us right with God by following it perfectly. Um, And then after sin entered the world, we see the very first shedding of innocent blood. Genesis 3.21 tells us this, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. That's the first time there's innocent blood of these animals shed for Adam and Eve. And we know Hebrews 9.22 tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so after sin enters the world and the law is given to show how far we fall short of God's perfection, then the sacrificial system was introduced into Israel's history, the shedding of animals' blood. And you have the guilt offering and the sin offering and the peace offering and all these different offerings. But, but here's the key, is that the Old Testament laws and the sacrifices were never intended to make us right with God. The law shows us how far we fall short. The sacrifices only covered sin. They didn't take sin away. They actually pointed to the ultimate sacrifice who would be Christ, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. So as the Old Testament predicts then that this Messiah is coming, that God would set the people of Israel free, there's a number of prophecies in the Old Testament. And when they describe this Messiah who is to come, there's two really visions of who He's going to be. He's going to be a conquering king but he's also going to be a suffering servant. The conquering king, we're told, he would establish a new kingdom. He would uh, be a a, a king of righteousness and and justice and that he would vanquish all evil and establish this kingdom. But also with that, passages like Isaiah 53 describe a suffering servant who would be rejected and beaten and killed and that he would actually bear the sins of all humanity upon himself. They are simultaneously described in the Old Testament. But what happens at the time that Jesus comes, and and they knew that this was the time He was going to come. Based on the prophecies of Daniel 9, they actually knew the exact time frame in which Jesus, the Messiah, would come. That's why the expectations are so high at this point. So even though they knew that and they, they had all of the Bible, their focus was on the conquering king. They were focused on a political kingdom that he would establish. And right now, being under the rule of Rome, being crushed by Rome, they, they were focused on overthrowing Rome. And they weren't thinking about this suffering servant side of it. So there were 400 years that passed from the closing of the Old Testament to John's ministry and the beginning of the New Testament. And these priests then, these priests and Levites, these were uh, men who were commissioned by God in the Old Testament to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people They would go into the Holy of Holies one time a year to atone for sins, um, but they dedicated themselves as well to the reading, to the understanding, to the teaching of God's Word. And that's why they're here asking John, who are you? Because they understood from God's Word that the Messiah should be coming around this time, and you look like you might be Him. So they're asking Him that. But the Old Testament also predicted a forerunner who would come before the Messiah. So kind of like before, before the, the headliner, right? The, the opening act in a sense. And here's what the Old Testament says. You have what John quoted in Isaiah 40, uh, verse 3. You also have Malachi 4, 
verses 5 and 6. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So John then is understood to be this forerunner. He's uh, teaching a little bit of fire and brimstone. He's teaching repentance and to embrace the truth. And so because they knew the Scriptures and because they knew what to expect, they're saying, well, if you're not the Christ, then who are you? Verses 25 and 26, they asked him and said to him, why then are you baptized? And if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, Jesus will later tell us that John did come in the spirit of Elijah as foretold in Malachi. John just simply is not answering their questions here because his focus is on Jesus. He said, I must become less. He must become greater. He's not really uh, interested in answering their questions. He's interested in pointing to the Messiah, to build expectation for the coming Messiah. And he says this then in verse 29, something crazy. He says, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Notice that. He says, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He doesn't just cover them up. He takes them away completely. You know, covering up sin is, is sort of like after you use the bathroom and you use air freshener. It's like, yeah, it smells a little better, but it's still nasty. It's all mixed up in there together, right? But Jesus takes it away. And, and friends, I just want you to think about that for a moment. If you have put faith in Christ, your sins, past, present, and future, they're not just covered up. You don't have to hang your head in shame. They've been completely taken away. So that sin that you're sitting there beating yourself up over, if you've put faith in Christ, let go of that. Let Jesus take the punishment for that sin because he already has on the cross. So in your mind, just, just tell the Lord, thank you for the forgiveness of that. Now, obviously, that moves us to a place of gratitude. It doesn't give us a license to sin in the sense that, oh, cool, I'll just take God's grace for granted. But, but it should also give you freedom to live your life free of guilt and shame if you're in Christ because they've been taken away past, present, and future. And John, again, he makes this reference. He existed before me, not, not in the, the, the physical body of Jesus because Jesus was actually born a few months after John, but, but again, he's pointing to the preexistence of Jesus, that, that Christ is fully God and fully man. And, uh, and, and then John says this in verse 34, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of of God. And how does John know that this is the Son of God? Well, he knew his Bible. See, it's important for us to understand that both John and his Jewish audiences, they were so familiar with their Bible that they knew this was the time in which the Messiah was to come. This is the exact moment of time, the only time he could come. So he can't still come now because Daniel 9 is so clear on when the Messiah would come. But they knew their Bibles. And so they were intentionally looking for the fulfillment of Scripture. And let's kind of just take a sidebar and talk about that for a moment here. Why can we trust the truth of the Bible? And I'm just going to offer a few reasons. There's a lot more you could look at, and you could take a much deeper dive, but 
just going to kind of give you an overview of a few important reasons why we can trust the Bible. Number one is the unity of the Bible. You know, the Bible, it's a collection of 66 different books written over a period of 1,600 years by 40 different authors, all of diverse backgrounds from different continents between Africa and Asia um, and, and Europe and three languages, Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. It's written in times of war and peace poverty, prosperity, calm, and great upheaval, and it speaks to the most profound and controversial subjects. Um, Yet despite this diversity, there's a complete unity of thought in terms of the theme of the Bible, and that theme is God's redemption of humanity through Jesus Christ, going all the way back to Genesis and all the way through to Revelation. Secondly, the self-assertion of the Bible. The Bible claims to be the Word of God, So we have to do something with that. Over 3,800 times in the Old Testament, the authors say they speak the word of the Lord. Uh, The New Testament affirms the uh, divine origins of the Old Testament. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Jesus would base his views on Scripture. He would say, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He would constantly ask the question of the religious leaders, have you not read? In other words, implying that the authority for teaching, the authority for life is in the scriptures that we read and that we study. And the New Testament actually has 300 direct quotes of the Old Testament. Uh, The apostles viewed the New Testament writings as the word of God as well. In 2 Peter, Peter says, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So God uses the unique personalities of the different authors, but it's the Holy Spirit uh, is where the word of God comes from. Peter even said this in chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, speaking of the New Testament, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters speaking in them of these things in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also, get this, the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. And so, as we saw yesterday that God has revealed Himself through creation and conscience and that God is truth, we can trust God through a specific revelation, His Word. The Bible also is relevant. It deals with all the issues, the hot-button issues today right? Abortion, sexuality, uh, divorce, health, spiritual fulfillment, war, wealth, forgiveness, marriage, parenting, work, relationships, all of that's just a start. All of these topics are discussed in the Bible. Everything that is relevant today you can find in Scripture. And then there's the reliability of the text. Uh, The number of manuscripts we have of the Bible. We have 5,300 Greek manuscript copies of the New Testament, 10,000 Latin Vulgate copies, over 9,300s of other early versions, which comes out to over 24,000 copies or portions of copies of the New Testament. Now, why is that important? Because we also have other ancient documents we use, right, to study in school and all these things. The, the, The only one that even comes close to the Bible is the Iliad by Homer, of which we only have 543 manuscript portions. So the Bible is overwhelmingly the most reliable Old Testament document in terms of number of manuscripts, but also in terms of the antiquity or the age of the manuscripts. There are 
copies of the New Testament that go back to 125 AD, and the New Testament was written from the late 40s to the 90s. So that is extremely close. It's close enough that people who would have been living when it was first written were, were living when those copies go back to. But compare that again to the Iliad, which is the, the second best ancient manuscript we have. The earliest copy we have was from 400 BC, the Iliad being written in 900 BC. There's a gap of 500 years. So with our New Testaments, we have a gap of about 30 with any other ancient document, it's a gap of 500 or more, depending on which document you're talking about. And then there's the accuracy of the manuscripts. Two ancient texts stand out for their accuracy. One is, again, the Iliad with 300 copies, all the different copies. There's 95% agreement in what they all say. So there's only like a 5% in terms of the transcribing differences with the Iliad. But with the New Testament, with over 24,000 copies, there's a 98.5% accuracy, and any discrepancies or little words like the or and, there's a couple of verses that we know were inserted much later, like in Europe, by certain translators, but none of the little differences affect any of the major doctrines or themes of Scripture. So there's a reliability of the Bible that is more reliable than any other ancient text, religious or otherwise, that we have in the entire world. And then also in the Bible, we have fulfilled prophecy. The Bible is full of specific prophecies specifically fulfilled in both the Old and the New Testament. And I'm sure uh, some of you will be studying this in some of the classes you have here at Western Christian. I was talking to a couple of your teachers, uh, Mr. Newell this morning, he was telling me how you're, you're digging into the reliability of Scripture and looking at this. And the other, uh, what's your name, sir? Dave, Mr. Hooper here, yeah, he was also telling me how you're studying. Hey, give it up for your teachers, guys. Give it up for all of them. Um, so you're, you're going to do a much deeper dive in some of these classes, which I, I am so excited for you. You're going to be so blessed as you do that. But, but I don't have time to go over all the prophecies, but, but let's just focus on some of the prophecies about Jesus. There, there, there's so many besides just Jesus that have already been fulfilled from the Old Testament. But let's just think about Jesus for a minute. If, if I was to tell you... In the year 2622, so I'm, I'm going, you know, what, 600 years in the future. If I was to tell you, I, I'm going to tell you where the president of the United States of 2622 is going to be born. I'm going to tell you at least one significant thing he does while he's president, and I'm going to tell you how he dies. So I say he's going to be born in Upland, California. Uh, when he's president, he's going to sign into to law that California becomes its own nation, <laughs> and uh, then he's going to die because somebody's going to shoot him. He's going to get assassinated. Okay, okay, I'm not saying, okay. if I was to say that right now, and somebody documented it, and then 500 years from now, lo and behold, one of those things happens, like, dude, this guy was born in Upland, or be like, that's crazy that that guy said that, you know, back in 500 years ago. And, but if I got all three right, you would say that's impossible. He must have been a time traveler and just came back and was messing with us or something, right? And yet, we have all of that with Jesus, born in Bethlehem. That's predicted in Micah, that Jesus would come and he would teach and he would heal and, and he, would, he would turn people's hearts to the Lord. I mean, that's all over the Old Testament. And then the fact that he would be pierced and that he would die and be crushed for our sins, even though he was innocent, Isaiah 53. It's all in the Bible. Just those three are there. Uh, let me give you another example. Um, Isaiah 53, verse 9 
says this about Jesus' death. And again, this was written 700 years before Christ was born. We know for a fact they have the Dead Sea Scrolls in Israel. I've seen them. They were discovered dated to 100 B.C. So nobody can say that this was written after Jesus. It was clearly written before Jesus was ever born. Isaiah 53.9 says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. So in this one verse, you have three prophecies about Jesus. He's going he's gonna to be assigned a grave with the wicked. Well, Mark 15.27 tells us, that Jesus was crucified with two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. So that's criminals. That's the wicked. And then with the rich in his death. So what's that? Were these guys rich? <laughs> no, they didn't crucify rich people back then on crosses. No, Matthew 27, verse 57 through 60 tell us, as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going by Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. So Jesus died with the wicked on the cross, and then he was buried with the rich in a rich man's tomb in his death. Both of those prophecies specifically fulfilled, written 700 years before he was born and lived and did his ministry and died. That is very, very specific. But then also that he had done no violence. He died this way, no deceit. We know that Jesus spoke nothing but the truth. He was not a man of violence in his, uh, you know, revolution that he led. In fact, when Peter cut off a dude's ear, he said, hey, put the sword away, right? And he healed, he healed the guy's ear. We see that later in the Gospels. So the point is three specific things fulfilled in the life of Jesus, and that's just one example. Bible scholars have, have said there's uh, 300 or more prophecies from the Old Testament that Jesus has fulfilled. And we might say, well, okay, well, what's the deal with, with that? I mean, did, did Jesus just sort of luck out, right? I mean, if, if he'd just been born in Bethlehem, okay, maybe. If he had just been crucified, maybe. But what do you do when there's all these prophecies that have taken place? And, and maybe just to help get your head around how improbable that is by just random chance, let me, uh, let me share with you something here from a book called Science Speaks. It was written by a man uh, named Peter Stoner. He's a college professor of mathematics and science. And what he did is he did this work with his students, actually, on the probability of Jesus fulfilling all these prophecies. Then he allowed his work to be scrutinized and analyzed by a group called the American Scientific Alliance, full of professors, PhDs, and scientists, so really smart people. And here's what they said about Peter Stoner's work. They said, the manuscript of Science Speaks has been carefully reviewed by a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation members and by the executive council of the, of the same group and has been found in general to be dependable and accurate in regard to the scientific material presented. The mathematical analysis included is based upon principles of probability, which are thoroughly sound, and Professor Stoner has applied these principles in a proper and convincing way. So the point is what I'm about to share with you has been uh, carefully researched, has been analyzed and scrutinized and found to be reliable. So here's what they found. What are the probabilities of Jesus just fulfilling eight of these 300, pro just eight of them? The probability came out to one, in a, a one chance in 10 to the 17th power. That's one chance in 100 quadrillion. That's a really big number. That's 17 zeros behind the one. Now, unless you're like really into math here, you may not be getting too excited about that. Like, okay, whatever. <laughs> but here's a, a, a picture they gave, like a, 
like an analogy of that. Imagine if you were to take 100 quadrillion quarters and cover the entire state of Texas. Okay, so that, that's a, a land mass of 268,580 square miles. It would have to be two feet deep, okay, and you've got nothing but quarters, the whole state of Texas. That's pretty crazy. Then you flew over on a plane and you flipped a quarter off, you marked this quarter with an X and just, you know, threw it out of the plane, let it land wherever, who knows where it lands, somewhere in this 100 quadrillion quarters in the state of Texas. And then you blindfold a guy. So we just pick somebody random here, put a blindfold on you, and we tell you, hey, you can walk around Texas uh, as, as much as you want, go wherever you want, but when you stop, wherever you decide to stop, you've got to reach down and pick up the first quarter that comes to your hand, and the chances that you would get that quarter that was dropped from the plane on your very first try as you wandered the state of Texas is the same probability that Jesus could fulfill just eight of those prophecies. In other words, it's impossible unless it's of divine supernatural origin. But further work has been done, and it gets even better. What about the chances of Jesus fulfilling 60 prophecies? Well, now the odds increase to 1 in 10 to the 157th power. And the likelihood, the analogy is this. The likelihood is the same as if there was a guy floating around in outer space, able to pick out one predetermined atom in a universe a trillion, 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 billion times the size of our universe. That's a big deal. That's not possible. I don't even know how you'd factor 300 possibles, uh, 300 pro prophecies, how you'd even factor that probability when you've got that one with 60. But he here's the deal. As we've been talking about, the Bible is true because God's character is true. And the Bible is the Word of God, and therefore we can take God at His Word. The Bible can be trusted, and we can build our lives on the Bible's truth. Well, back to our text in verse 35 uh, through 51. I'm just going to kind of skip through these, but Jesus begins to have followers now. John has prepared the way. Jesus has arrived on the scene. And we see uh, verse 42, Andrew, brother of Peter, they, they begin to follow Jesus, these fishermen. Verse 42 tells us, Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Then a guy named Philip begins to follow Jesus. He goes and grabs a friend named Nathaniel. Verse 45 says, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. And, and the point here is, again, you see, here's these guys. The, these are not even religious leaders, but they know the Scripture so well. They're anticipating so well that this is what's going to happen, that they're able to recognize this is the time. This is the guy prophesied, Moses and the prophets. And, and it's kind of funny because Nathanael's throwing shade on uh, Nazareth, right? It's not like a, it's, a, it's kind of a, a dumpy town. I mean, kind of like, look, I, I'm from Fresno, so I know when I lived in L.A., I heard a lot of Fresno jokes where you all are from, right? And so that'd be kind of like one of you guys from Upland saying, can anything good come out of Fresno? I mean, really, right? But, but even though he's making that joke, there's actually biblical knowledge going on here because he knew the Messiah was supposed to come from Bethlehem. So it's like, well, what, Nazareth? See, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth. So if anybody thought he was born in Nazareth to not fulfill the prophecy, they were mistaken. Uh, but, but 
Nathaniel knew his Bible. And this should inspire us. We want to know our Bibles. And, and eventually what happens is uh, Jesus is able to tell Nathaniel, hey, I saw you under a tree and I know who you are. And, and this supernatural insight into Nathaniel's life, life makes him in awe of Jesus and who he is. And, and he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Verse 49, you are the King of Israel. And then Jesus answers and says to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And friends, that's what the truth of Scripture will do. It will cause us to leave a life without God, leave a former life, even radically sometimes uproot ourselves as these men here do because Jesus has the power to change lives. Jesus is inviting you and I to follow him. You see, the law pointed to the need for Christ, uh, but only Christ could fulfill the law. The sacrifices would ultimately never forgive sins, but they would point to the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The prophecies of the Old Testament were always there to ultimately point to Christ, to see that He's the fulfillment of them all in ways that would be impossible apart from the supernatural hand of God. And Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 tell us, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank You. We thank You that You're here with us and that we can trust You. We can trust Your Word. And my prayer, Lord, is that each one of us here would be open to Your truth, that we would ask questions. We struggle. We'd be open about that. God, this is a safe place to talk. And God, that we would trust you when your word calls us to something that's difficult, something that we'd rather not do or something we'd rather do that your word would move us away from, that we would trust that you, the one who created us, who designed us in your love, you know what's best for us. But most of all, Lord, that we would recognize, as Jesus said in John 5, that the Scriptures point to Jesus. And Lord, you're not about us following a bunch of rules or offering sacrifices to cover our sin. No, you are in the business of changing our lives by completely taking away our sin, filling us with your Spirit and leading us to a true, authentic, life-giving relationship with you. That's what you delight in, Lord. You delight in each person here walking with you. You invite us to that. You welcome us to that. So it's to you that we look today in Jesus' name.